Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Not even going to read the whole verse. We're just going to read that first phrase. I'll wait for you to get there with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Y'all there? God is creating the universe. It says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I need you really bad. to stay out of the way and to let the Holy Spirit speak to your church today. You are always so, so good, so timely, and so prophetic at speaking a word for your church in the moment of our need. We believe that you're able to do that. We trust that and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Then God said, let us make man in our image. What does it mean for men and women to be made in the image of God? What does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? I think, at least off the top of our head, we can at least say that there is something about humanity that is different than every other created thing that relates directly to God. There, are, there is some level of similarity, something that we share with God. Of course, we know that we are completely different from God or He is different from us. We call Him holy, meaning that He is completely other. So there are things that God is that we know that we're not. He is infinite. He is wise, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent. He's everywhere, all-powerful. He's unchangeable. He's unmoved. He knows everything from the beginning to the end. But there are certain ways in which we are similar to God, though not perfectly similar. We can share and relate in things that God does. We are made in His image. Things like love. God is love. We can also share love and experience love. We are rational. We can think through certain things. We have a a consciousness of ourselves But even beyond some of these things, there's something else at the core of the image of God, something about God that makes him who he is that we can likewise relate to. And this is simply that the God that Christians worship is distinctly and uniquely Trinitarian. Meaning unlike any other professed or confessed God, The God that Christians serve exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now you can look from Genesis to Revelation and not see anything that says Trinity. 
It was Tertullian who first coined the term Trinity in the third century in his attempt to try to describe what he saw in the scriptures as the identity of God, and it was saturating the scriptures. 106 passages explicitly speaking of a relationship between the three persons of the Godhead. I'll just give you one of them. Jesus commanded his people, his disciples, to baptize converts in the name, not the names, but the singular name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the 17th century, the church would try to describe this uh, accurately in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, saying that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same substance, equal in power and glory, and for three centuries the church would begin to wrestle with articulating how that even works and what it means. In the fifth century, a document would be thrown together called the Athanasian Creed, which said, and I quote, whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, meaning the universal faith, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the universal faith, which faith except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And this is what we should believe. It's this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. In other words, the early church would say, this is so absolutely important that to say that you are a Christian means that you believe that God exists in three persons. I want to stop right here and address the pink elephant in the room. Because some of you perhaps came in, you're saying, you know what, I just wanted a three-point sermon on how to balance my checkbook or how to get through the day without going crazy. This is all very esoteric and mysterious. What does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with what I'm going through? And to you, my friends, I would say absolutely everything. Anything in Christianity that is good is good because God is Trinity. Everything. The creation of the universe exists because God is Trinity. It was God who spoke the universe in existence, Genesis chapter 1 with the instrumentation of the Son of God in Colossians who made all things, even as the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. Our salvation is dependent and contingent on the fact that God exists in three persons. The Father predestines, the Son accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit applies. And even our relationships are contingent on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does it mean for God to be Trinity, but that God exists in relationship? Look back at our verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. When God speaks of himself, he uses the first person plural, He's not trying to be fancy. He is speaking about a community and a relationship that exists in himself. 
There is such a relational depth to God by himself that he experiences. And that has to be true, doesn't it? Because we have these statements that God is love. In fact, it was the Apostle John that said God is love. And we believe that. But how can God be love unless he has an object of his affection? And if God is not Trinity, he needed humanity to show that love too. Meaning that if God is not Trinity, his being depends on us existing. And that is absolutely false. God is all sufficient. But if God existed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he existed in harmonious, beautiful, perfect fellowship and joy, peace, love. In fact, we see that theme throughout the scriptures. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The father is known for giving love. The son is known as as being the object of that love and sharing that love with others. It was of the son that it was said, this is my beloved son, the father would say, in whom I am well pleased. And it's the Holy Spirit that seems to steer up that love, pouring the love of the Father abroad into our hearts. The Father gives love. The Son is the object of that love and shares that love. The Spirit steers up that love. This can only be explained by what the medieval scholars would say in just a couple, a couple phrases, not knowing any other way to put it. Perichoresis, the divine dance. Their only way of describing God was as a divine dance of fellowship that existed between those three persons. So what in the world does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means we get pulled into a divine dance. It means that we too were made for relationship. It means that he created us not because God was lonely. He didn't need us. He created us because he wanted to share himself with us. And our very purpose is to be swept up in the joy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet it doesn't even stop there. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement, or uh, uh, literally as his counterpart. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Don't let the gravity of that statement escape you. God made humanity to experience him in a divine dance which was perfect and unblemished from sin. And yet even in that moment he says, it is not over. I will create other relationships in which this will spill over. It's not enough that you would have this divine relationship. You will also need these human relationships You were made not just for divine relationship, but other relationships with other image bearers to reflect our enjoyment of God off each other uh, and in that way escalating the experience that we have in the joy of the Lord. God wants to spread himself. He wants to spread the joy that he has known from all of eternity in and of himself. 
the love that he has known throughout all eternity, the peace, the comfort, all of that stuff that exists from him and by him. He wants to share it in a community of people in which he would cause his dwelling to reside. That makes us ask the question, well, how then do we enjoy Jesus in light of that? How do we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength in light of who he is as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Easy. Enjoying Jesus takes place most potently in the context of Christ-centered relationships. Not just when things are going perfectly, but when things are going awfully, when the world is crumbling around you and things don't make sense in life, we have a transcendent ability and gift by God to enjoy God in the midst of all of that. And its most potent form, according to the scriptures, takes place in Christ-centered relationships. Jesus in John chapter 17 verse 20 through 23 would pray to the Father for us and he would say this, I pray not only for these disciples but also for those who believe in me through their message. He might as well just say reality. I'm not only praying for my disciples, Peter and Paul and John and James, but everyone after them who will believe in their message. What does he pray? Listen to this. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one so the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Scholars have often said that anytime something is repeated three times, the author must really, really, really mean it. Jesus says this four times, whatever that means. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us. May they be one as we are one. May they be made completely one. I can't help but think that there is something Jesus wants us to get and apprehend and understand about earthly relationships that are centered around Christ. And I think we can pull from that at least one thing. Individualism is not normative of Christianity. The sense in which we can be lone rangers and just follow Jesus in the quietness of our own personal relationships apart from other people seems to be absolutely foreign from the New Testament. I've often heard it say uh, lines similar to this nature, I love Jesus, just not religion, or I love Jesus, just not the church, things of that nature. And I know it could mean a variety of different things. I know that sometimes people mean religion to be legalism, And that would be true. But sometimes people mean it to say, I just want just me and Jesus. I don't need his people. They they hurt me. They disappoint me. They fail me. It's just me and the Lord. 
The Bible doesn't seem to know anything about that type of Christianity. Now I know there will be some very extraordinary circumstances where that's the case. A Muslim gets saved in the 1040 window by him or herself. They don't have Christian community. A missionary parachutes into some island that's unreached by uh, the church. They're by themselves. They don't have Christian community. I know there's extraordinary circumstances, but I also know this. Once the gospel is proclaimed in the 1040 window in that context, or on that island, or in an urban neighborhood where nobody knows the Lord, or in a suburb where no one knows the Lord, the gospel will create Christ-centered community. The gospel will give birth to relationships that are tied together by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christianity seems to know nothing of this individualistic type of faith. The gospel creates community in its path. So just as God can only be who He is, which is love, in the context of relationships, which is the Trinity, we could say that we can only be who we are as the church in the image of God in the context of relationships. I'm going to say that one more time. Just as God can only be who He is in the context of relationships, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, so we are only called to be who we are in the context of relationships. You might ask, well, what kind of relationship should those be? Well, if you read the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, in the Trinity we see a radical focus on the other. We see the Father who is sovereign over all things, telling us to look to and listen to His beloved Son. We see the beloved Son who is preeminent, saying to wait for the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit then saying, uh, pointing the finger to to Jesus and, and glorifying Jesus, deferring to Jesus. But then we see Jesus again directing all of that to the Father's glory. And we see this constant divine dance centered around mutual deferment and humility and consideration of others at the expense of self. There is a radical others-centeredness in the identity and the persons of who God is. So if our relationships are crafted after that, if we were trying to model our lives and our church life after who God is, we would have to say Christianity is completely others-centered. It's not centered around me, and it's not centered around you. It's centered around the other person sitting next to you and across from you and across the street from you. In fact, if we are truly enjoying Jesus, we're enjoying Jesus not because we're saying we enjoy Jesus and yet are steamrolling people in our paths. We're enjoying Jesus because it is absolutely manifest in the way that we treat one another. This turns out to be exactly what we see commanded of the New Testament church from beginning to end. I'll just give you a couple examples. Mark chapter 9, be at peace with each other. John 13, wash one another's feet. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
live in harmony with one another. Stop bad, uh, passing judgment on one another. Accept one another as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Or in our time, maybe a side hug. Have equal concern for each other. Serve one another in love. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. One, uh, love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Serve one another. Clothe yourself in humility towards one another, love one another. All of the New Testament seems to reflect the glory of God. Yeah, let's praise the Lord today. All of the scripture seems to reflect the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the relationships of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And their other centeredness. The call to enjoy Jesus, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength is a call to be others centered. So if we are to obey that, knowing that this is a work of God, it's hard to be selfless. It's impossible, maybe. So this is a work of God, but if it's a work of God amongst us, then our, uh, our, our charge of obedience would to be to position ourselves in a place to do that. In the very least, we should say that we should be around other Christians a lot. We should be spending life together. If you don't know how to do that, if you don't know any Christians, you should at least join a community group. You should be in homes with other Christians. You should be sharing meals with other Christians. You should be weeping with other Christians who are in a, a place of distress. You should be confessing sin with other Christians. You should be praying for other Christians. You should be going through the scriptures with other Christians. You should be laughing with other Christians. You should be sharing meals and having a great time with other Christians. You should be worshiping the Lord with other Christians. You should be enjoying Jesus with other Christians. You should be discipling. Are you discipling someone in your life? Are you being discipled by someone? At the very least, to position ourselves to fully enjoy Jesus would be to say, am I with the people of God who are enjoying Christ? Now this doesn't mean we turn it into a holy huddle. Don't escape the world. Don't escape the non-believer. We are to share life with non-believers too. We're to share life with other believers as well. Now, perhaps some of you are hearing this and you're saying, you know what, great, Lazo, this is wonderful. Very poetic and Trinitarian and words like substance and all of that, great. 
Perhaps for some of us what we're thinking deep down inside is that this sounds lovely on the outside, but in reality, relationships are very difficult. Perhaps you're hearing this and you're saying, I don't want to be a part of relationships. I've been burned so many times. There is absolutely nothing attractive about entering into them at all. And I'm not, you understand, I'm not talking purely, I'm not talking about romantic relationships only. Every relationship. Siblings, parental, friends, work. The truth is, relationships are some of the most difficult things that we know. Some of the best experiences that we have in life are relational. Whether it's love or laughter or physical intimacy or a sense of security. Some of the best experiences people have in this life are relational. But some of the worst experiences we have in this life are also relational. Slander. Gossip. Lies. Adultery. Slavery, betrayal, death. Some of you today are hearing a command from Scripture to be in relationship not just with God but with people and you cringe because you have felt abandoned and hurt by others. Perhaps some of you have felt abandoned and hurt by Christians, the very people who the Bible says are supposed to love. All of this is due to the fact that sin touches everything in this life. It touches our relationships. It touches us. It touches our best intentions. And this is why, brothers and sisters, in our efforts to obey Christ and be in relationship, we must also resist the urge to make community our functional Savior. We engage in relationship with one another, but we do not worship relationships. We engage in community, but we do not put community on the pedestal of worship that only God should be on. Because in doing so, and some of us do this, right? I do this. And it could take a variety of forms. I am dating or in a relationship with this person because I had a bad life and my dad or my mom was not there for me, but he will be there for me. Or what my family could not provide for me, she will provide for me. Or for what I am what I am feeling lack in in my life in the life that I have spent, my kids will accomplish, and I will live vicariously through their success. Or I found this bumping church on the coastlands. The meets in a gym, and the music is loud, and the preaching is loud. And the last church I got, I, I, I came from hurt me and the people hurt my feelings and betrayed me and did things that they shouldn't have done. But this church will be different. At this church, no one will hurt me. Everything will be perfect. It will be the most romantic thing ever and I will not suffer. I will not go through trials. No one will let me down. I will not be disappointed in people. This particular congregation may be 
one of the most difficult in the area because it is fairly large. And you see what we do when we do things like that. Instead of serving each other as the scriptures declare us to do, we are putting, instead of serving one another at our own expense, we are putting impossible expectations on others at their expense. Expectations that are often impossible for them to bear and crush them under the weight of our impossible expectations. And when they fail to meet them, will crush us under the weight of our disappointment. And that is what happens anytime you serve a false god. False gods crush humanity under their weight. What we need in this life is a better savior than other people. What we need in this life is a better savior than community. We are in community with each other, but we need a savior that transcends community, and we have one in Jesus Christ who came to reconcile bad, broken things, and he starts with us and God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, listen to this, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh and uh, the dividing wall of hostility. Have you ever been hurt by someone else? Have you ever been devastated by someone else? Brothers and sisters, I have this to say to you. That regardless of how you have been hurt, Christ knows how you feel in this life because he was there with you before you. For some of us, it will be a varying degree of pain. For me, the extent of my pain with other relationships is just friends who have walked out on me or betrayed me. That is the extent of my pain, and it stung. I've shared some of those things with you. Led me to a place of bitterness and hurt and pain. For some of you, it is far exceeds what I've been through. For some of you, it's not just a, 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 an act of, of hurt or pain or something that someone said that was a, a dear friend. It was perhaps a spouse or a parent, or a loved one. Maybe it wasn't something that was said that hurt. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. But for some of you, it's not just years of knowing uh, someone that, that exacerbates that pain. It's decades. While being abandoned by, hurt by, betrayed by, or losing a loved one that you have known for many years is incredibly heartbreaking, I want you to understand and begin to wrap your head around this, how infinitely more devastating what the Son of God felt when the Father abandoned him on the cross. Or as we would say theologically, turned his face away as the hymn declares. As Jesus would say in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that this isn't some friendship that I have had since I was in high school. 
or a parent or a loved one that I have had for 30 years. This is Jesus who has experienced perfect fellowship and harmony for all of eternity with the Father that has been unbroken. And in that moment, it has been torn. Why? Why did the Father turn his face away in that moment? Because Jesus, the Son of the living God, was taking upon himself the sin of humanity. The garbage and the drama and the heartache and the things that we have done in our own relationships against one another. He took it upon himself, becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And in reconciling us to God, he consequently attempts to reconcile us successfully to one another. And here's the deal. If you're a part of a church, and the Bible says that if you're a Christian, you are a part of the church. If you are a part of the church, you've got to know up front that you're joining a group of messed up people. Now that might fool you for a moment on a Sunday when we come and our Sunday's best and we we come with our smiles and we're singing loud, but we are a group of messed up people. If you don't believe that, read 1 John. Or, you know, the whole Bible. <laughs> and there's a tension in there. The tension is that we know from the scriptures that we were made for other-centered relationships, but we are all truthfully self-centered. How in the world does that work? It works by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel gives us a future hope. Our future hope in the gospel is that Christ will one day beautify everything that is ugly and broken. Christ will one day reconcile broken relationships, wipe every tear from our eyes, heal every sickness, heal every disease, and take away death and shame and the grave and sin along with it. I can't help but think of this one scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis's book. When the four kids are sitting around the table with those two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're, they're sitting and they're, they're drinking their milk and they're waiting, you know, like, what are we going to do about the white witch? What are we going to do about the white witch? She's ruining everything, turning all of our friends into stone. What are we going to do? Should we do it? And the, Mr. Beaver says, no, you can't do anything. You've got to wait for Aslan. You've got to wait for him to come. C.S. Lewis, famous for that parallel, that Aslan is a, a parallel of God, Christ himself. And Edmund pipes up and says, naively, wait a minute, don't you think that when the white witch sees Aslan that he'll, she'll turn him into stone too? And Mr. Beaver just sits back and just begins to crack up laughing at this little Boy. He basically says, you're so cute. <laughs> and he says something to this effect. Listen, son of Adam, Edmund, I'll give extra credit to the white witch if she can even look him in the eye when he sets his foot down. I will give her extra credit if she can even look him in the face when he steps on the scene. No, when Aslan comes, he will write every wrong, and he will manifest his power and dominion over his kingdom once and for all. 
Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ and through Christ to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The true Aslan is coming. And he will right everything that has been broken in this life. And our future hope is in his resurrection. But the gospel also gives us a present hope for now. At least as far as relationships go, it means that since we have been justified in Christ, we don't have a need to be approved by anyone else. You know what that does? It allows you to love people who don't deserve it because you don't need their love in return. It allows you to forgive people because you don't need their acceptance in return. It allows you to comfort people in their distress because you have been comforted in your distress. It means that you are enabled to experience joy in the resurrection and share that joy with others, even in times of immense suffering. And that is a powerful force of reconciliation in a world that desperately needs grace, that desperately needs a promise of hope. Jesus would say in John chapter 17, verse 23, I am in the church. I am in the people of God. And you, Father, are in me. May they be made completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. In other words, Christian relationships become the launch pad for the mission of God. As you are experiencing the enjoyment of Christ in all circumstances with other people of like mind, reflecting the transcendent truth that Jesus Christ has conquered death, sin, and the grave, and you believe that, it manifests the gospel. It proclaims the gospel to those who desperately need it. Paul said, we weep, but we do not mourn in the same way that the world mourns, as though they had no hope. We weep and mourn as people who have a transcendent hope. And in a world without hope, the identity of God in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit shows us this, that the reason relationships exist is because God cannot help but share himself with others. He cannot help but share his goodness with others. He cannot help but share his joy with others. He cannot help but share his peace with others and his comfort with others. And he made you specifically so that you could enjoy him and to enjoy him with others. And when you are enjoying God in community with other people, even in the midst of tragedy, you will be able to say with confidence as the Apostle Paul said, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning
that you would manifest the tangible presence of the glory of God in this place. The Holy Spirit, you would have free reign in this church right now to apply the power of the gospel to broken hearts. Those of us that have been hurt, abandoned, gotten the short end of the deal, those of us that are tripped up, confused, those of us that have questions, those of us that are asking why, those of us that have lost all trust in humanity, trust in each other, those of us that have simply just been offended, we pray that the love of God would be poured out abroad into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would open our eyes to see the glory and the grandeur of God in the face of Christ. We ask that God where things have been severed and that things have been broken that you would mend them for your glory and your pleasure. And we pray, Lord, that you would carve out of our church a gathering of men and women who are so tightly knit to you, Christ, that we can't get away from each other. That in pulling close to the center, we would also bump shoulders with one another in the most profound, life-changing ways. You've called us into a covenant community for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. This is our family. God, you are the head of this family. Lead us where you choose to. We will follow you into the darkest places, knowing that you are the light that shines into the dark. We pray these things in Jesus' name.